I saw it on Linden Street. Hello, and welcome to I Saw It on Linden Street, the show dedicated to the joy of finding an appreciation in cult films, exploitation oddities, beloved classics, and all points in between. I'm your host, Chris Roberts, inviting you to join us here at the Linden Street Cinema Experience Theater as we once again dig up a fun cinematic relic from the past. If you're new to the show, thank you so much for joining us. This isn't your standard film review, rather it's a synopsis of a film that we feel deserves to have another inspection. A little bit of background thrown in on the actors, information on the director, and hey, if I'm doing my job right, perhaps you'll get half amusing story out of me. Fair be warned, while we don't cover all aspects of plot, we do discuss endings and spoilers. So, if you'd like to be surprised, please give this film a viewing before you listen to us. If you like us, and I hope that you do, please recommend this podcast to a friend. Give us a favorable review. I actually have a little bit of housekeeping here at the top of the show. I'm very pleased to announce that I recently did a brief, minuscule, smidge of a bit of moonlighting on an episode of the Forgotten News podcast, and I had the marvelous opportunity to be a voice on one of those deep historical dives that they do ever so well into real history stories. I get to play a whiny mayor. Just in time for the end of summer and tying in with issues that we are actually facing today as a nation, Jim and Kit have released a fantastic episode entitled The Swimming Pool. It's all about a town in Ohio that in 1947 found itself embroiled in a lawsuit as racist local whites attempted to block African Americans from utilizing a local municipal pool. It went to court, people got in each other's faces, some interesting things happened. Fabulously researched and sporting a far better set of voice actors than I ever could hope to have. It's a really fantastic historical podcast, and if you're listening to this and it's not your first time doing so, I would think that means you kind of like me and you'd also like to support our friends. So please, do yourself a favor, go out, give it a listen, and give them a review today. Alright, enough of that business. On to the task at hand. You know, it's August. We're in the dog days of summer here, and we are knocking on the door of that Proustian back-to-school experience that we all know and love. Except we're in the middle of a global pandemic, and we're still working from home, awkwardly trying to plan out our vacations to the backyard. So, that makes this the perfect time for us to bust out the strange and awkward new theme for this month. Something I call, wait, what? That's our selection of some great, head-scratching cult classic movies that are sure to make you pause and hopefully run off to your local purveyor of video media and just take in these bizarre happenings. This week, we kick off our month with a film that was lost for almost a quarter of a century. A plucky little do-it-yourself lost horror romp that is 1977's Deathbed, The Bed That Eats. Join us! Alright, full disclosure, we're going to be talking a lot this week about me, so you've been warned. You know, you may not know this about me, but it is rare that I've ever found myself being ahead of the curve on anything related to the pop culture bubble. 
I'm gonna go out on a limb here and blame my geographical location, rather than my crippling social awkwardness and my on-the-spectrum routine-like behavior. That seems more logical to me. Yeah, yeah, let's do that. Alright, I'll explain. While I love the Midwest of the United States for its general life's pace and its access to both metropolitan culture, while still having that rural and suburban sensibility, our literal geography, even in the urban areas, makes us quite late to adapt the latest fashions and trends that are sweeping the nation. Case in point. Here, when I was getting my hands onto Pogs back in 1996, I was a good like four years too late to that fad, and I was getting hand-me-downs from cooler family members who lived in California who were already bored of such things. Oh man, you youth of the day, you don't know what I'm even talking about or how well you have it. Alright, this is for you Gen Z peeps. It, it's a trend that originally came out of the 1920s originating in Hawaii. They had decorative cardboard caps that would be put on glass milk bottles, and they ended up being collected and traded by children. So this went on like over the decades, came back again in the 50s, and then it came back again in the 90s, except it had commercial resurgence in the 90s itself. So think of it as like marbles of that decade. You would collect POGS, which itself is an acronym for passion fruit, orange juice, and guava. And then you would stack them, just make these towers of these various decorative caps, and then you had a slammer, which was a big metal or plastic piece that you would hurl down at the stacks and knock them over. And if you were the one throwing, you got to pick up anything that landed face up with the picture on it. You would keep doing this over and over again until all caps were collected, and then you would look at what you got. That was called fun. How's that iPad and unlimited internet access treating you now, you little shits? Seriously, you don't know how good you have it. <clears throat> Alright, I digress. I'll put old man Chris away, and as I was saying, it's rare that I would ever find myself being ahead of the curve on such things in pop culture. And when I say rare, I mean, as of right now, I can only think of, like, two instances where I was actually on the ball and on the bubble of predicting something that was either cool or relevant ahead of schedule. One such time, 2002, I predicted that the film 28 Days Later was going to be a quote, thing. I already was a Danny Boyle fan, and while I myself am not really into the fast zombies as much, I, I know they're not actually undead in that film, they're infected people, but keep your angry tweets and emails at bay, I get it. But regardless, I did my homework in this case, and I read up on the making of the film before I left college for that summer to go home, and I was telling people that, guys, when you go home, this is going to be the film that's going to come out that you're all going to want to see. And people that I respected came back to me in the fall and said, we totally went and saw that movie. You were right. It felt so good to actually be able to pick something up before it was main released and tell people they're going to like it. Seriously, that is this man's biggest Matt Helm, James Bond moment of pop culture suaveness and cool, and that is really depressing as uh, I think about that and say that out loud. So picture it, 2003. 
America is about to launch an ill-fated excursion into Iraq to stop the very non-existent threat of weapons of mass destruction. Outcast is blasting hey ya all over the radio, and a young and very broke Chris is walking around a Borders bookstore with no money, forlornly looking at books and DVDs that he couldn't afford, with the verve of a starving man being placed in front of a high-end steakhouse window. I have to cop to this. Even to this day, when I actually have some spending money, you know, what my wife lets me use, I can't really explain to you with much clarity my decision-making process when it comes to buying stuff. If friends and family think I'm squirrely now about the films and books that I spend my money on, you should have seen me back in the day when I was, quote, desperate. I was a sick young cinephile with a list miles long of things I wanted, a backlog of both online and European film catalogs, and the sheer pathetic reality of a man who would just stroll into video stores with a checkbook, hoping he could haggle the person behind the desk that what I had just signed was completely good, and please it'll totally clear in like the next two days or so. These were dark and desperate times, and I would find myself skewing towards items that would often be more expensive, yet they were the things that were rarer or harder to get. And my logic was, you know, someday I'm going to have the means and the funds. I can always get that stuff that everyone else has then. You're right. I don't have a copy of Conan the Barbarian yet. There is an Australian import of Ralph Bakshi's Fire and Ice that's region-free, and I'm going to get that. So in short, I was the guy paying $25 for a single film instead of walking in and getting three really good or popular films that I did like for the same price. Here's the trade-off, though. I was a dorm rat, and I had the weirdest shit at my disposal. VHS tapes, DVDs, video discs... You want to see strange things? Come talk to me. Granted, it was a very limited group of people that were A, impressed with that, and B, who were coming to talk to me to begin with. But nonetheless, they were impressed. And so, again, I find myself in 2003, in a Borders, looking over a bin of cult films. And I find a single copy of something at the time I had never heard of or seen before. A film that had been listed on the box as a lost classic now rediscovered and cleaned up and released by the good folks on cult epic dvd i was holding in my hands deathbed the bed that eats i'm not even going to go over the plot with you but yes on the title alone it does sum it all up hmm. it's 23.99 i can hardly afford gas for my car this week you're right chris this film needs to come home with you so what do I do? I buy it. I watch it. It's weird. It's interesting. My friends in the dorm are not as impressed. Usual boo! Yeah, nice one, Chris, and thank you. And that's really all I thought would happen, and that would be the end of things. So now we're going to jump. Smash cut. 2007. Out of college. I'm getting ready to stand up for a friend's wedding, and I am spinning the latest comedy album... Uh, well, at the time it was a couple years old, from one of my favorite comedians, one Mr. Patton Oswalt, for my sister and myself as we're out running errands and getting ourselves set for said wedding. 
The album is the Marvelous 2004 offering Werewolves and Lollipops, and I had just recently got it. Um, We were loving it. As I'm driving along, we're listening, and the following track starts to play in the car. They released a movie on DVD. It was made in 1977. They never released it. It just now got put out on DVD this year, and it's called Deathbed, The Bed That Eats People. I'm not making... Go IMDb this. This is a real movie. Deathbed, The Bed That Eats People. And it's about a bed that's evil and it eats people. That's the whole movie. And the backstory is it's like the 1500s. There's a demon. The guy kills the demon with a sword. The demon's blood gets on the bed. Now the bed's possessed. Go to present day, 77. When people fuck on the bed, the bed kills them because it's evil. So we're laughing at it, of course, because it's funny. But then I turn to my sister and I say, hey, I have that movie. Now, at this point, like all good doubting younger siblings who have been put on far too many times by their older siblings, she assumes I'm being weird and yanking her chain and starts to write me off. Yeah, sure you do. But of course, I'm me. I get indignant and I tell her, no, seriously, I have that movie. It's kind of nuts. He's getting the title wrong, but he's mostly right about the other parts. Later, some coworkers of my wife decided to like share that they too liked movies, and they're trying to bust off some knowledge. And wouldn't you know it, of all the crazy things, Deathbed comes up. And I find myself standing across from a person who's trying to hold court and tell people and me about this obscure film that... They're sure that no one's heard about. It's all about this killer bed, possessed by a demon, was made in 77, never officially released. Sure you all haven't seen it. Now, my wife says she loves me and, more importantly, tolerates me, but I'll freely admit this. I don't often impress her much with my knowledge. So it's kind of sad that one of the things that sort of, you know, tipped it over into a win for me in her book is the moment I got to shut this person down by interrupting them and telling them they're completely getting their information about this film wrong. Look, the plot is wrong. You're describing it wrong. XYZ happens, and it happens in this order this way, and the reason why I'm telling you this, and I know it's because I own the film. See? All it takes is her being semi-impressed that I know what the hell I'm talking about. And thankfully, it's occurring on such a useful topic. I mean, when I think back on all the times I've been able to impress a room full of people with my knowledge of Deathbed, the bed that eats... Yeah, yeah, I I heard them too. Now, in reality, this film is not considered to be a good one. Actually, by some folks, it's considered to be one of the worst films ever made. I will go and defend it by saying it is not one of the worst films ever made by a long shot. There are far worse things you can go out and see. But I will tell you this, for all the wooden dialogue, the stilted narration, the strange, poorly done scenes, for all of that that's offered with this story, 
I have to say, how the film came to be and its making of is a really interesting backstory. So if nothing else, this film has a unique place in cinematic history. And to start understanding that story, we need to go and focus on the director, one Mr. George Barry. Now, George Barry was a Michigan native growing up in the Detroit suburb of Royal Oak, Michigan, where he still lives to this day. Oddly enough, he's from the same neighborhood that the Raimi brothers, uh, that would be one director, Sam Raimi, uh, who would go on to direct things like Evil Dead and the first Spider-Man trilogy. Uh, yeah, that's where he and his brother Ted grew up with the chin himself, Mr. Bruce Campbell, who, if I have to tell you who Bruce Campbell is and you're listening to this podcast, oof, we're going to have a lot of catching up to do. And hey, like those neighbors, young George also wanted to get into filmmaking. While he was attending the University of Michigan, he got it in his head that he could make his own independent horror film. It was all going to be based on this wild dream he had recently had, involving a dark bed that would engulf people, almost like consuming them in a sense. In telling this story, director Barry chose to weave in an actual historical figure as part of the plot, one Aubrey Beardsley, who was a English author and illustrator who died tragically young at the age of 25 in 1898 from complications due to tuberculosis. Some of his artwork actually appears in this film itself. So it's 1972. He's just out of college and he manages to scrape together $10,000 of his own money and armed with a color 16 millimeter camera and you know, he figured by using 16 millimeters, he could blow it up later for a full theatrical release if he can ever get this film done. He puts his money where his mouth is and he hires Roberto Fresco to be his cameraman and he finds a young guy named Jock Brandis to come on board and oversee the special effects on a film that he has cobbled together. And it's for a script that he is now calling Deathbed. Now, I have to interrupt production of the film to say just a couple words about Mr. Jock Brandis. You're going to see why. Mr. Brandis himself was born in the Netherlands, and as a young child, he and his family moved to Canada. After graduating from McMaster University in Ontario, the young Brandis decided he needed to do some volunteer work, kind of start his life out on the right steps, so he joined the Canadian International Development Organization, or CUSO. Now, they are Canada's version of America's Peace Corps. Not quite thrilled with that work, he ended up joining Oxfam, which is a charitable organization who does global relief work to help provide disaster relief, as well as focusing on the concept of eradicating both poverty and hunger in the world. Jock himself ended up flying a bunch of missions to deliver food and supplies to Biafra during their failed war for independence during what we now consider to be known as the 1967 Nigerian Civil War. As blockades were imposed upon Biafra during an almost three-year period, it is during that time that an estimated three million Biafran citizens died of starvation. They were literally choked off by a neighboring power. 
Brandis himself would fly relief sorties under fire from the Nigerian military to deliver food and medical aid to people. To this day, Brandis and his fellow aid workers are now wanted by the Nigerian government, tried in absentia on charges of air piracy, and found guilty of running Nigerian blockades. Eventually, he got back to Canada, and then he emigrated to the United States to work in the film business. And Brandis himself would work on both this film and a variety of other films, serving in some capacities doing special effects, but most often working as a gaffer, that's a lighting electrician on a film set, and also as a lighting designer. You've probably seen some of his work. He did Videodrome, Scanners, Blue Velvet, Passenger 57, and Serial Mom. Here's the thing, though. Even when he's working on these films, Brandis never actually gave up doing his humanitarian aid work. He had taken actually a regular day job as a broadcast engineer in the early 2000s, and in 2002, he ended up taking some time off to fly to Mali to help them put in a water replacement treatment system. From his time there in Mali, he had noticed that they had been switching from agricultural crops over to cotton, and he understood that that really robs the fields of their nutrients. He decided he was going to try to work on solving the problem of what they could do to revitalize the soil. And it's here that Brandis himself hit upon, why don't you guys grow peanuts? And you can either put them in amongst the cotton, or you can do them in mass rotations with your other cotton fields. And that will help both as a food source for the country, and it will also bring much needed nitrogen back to the soil. Unfortunately, that opened up one more problem. You see, Mali itself, bordering the Sahara Desert, is so strapped to maintain its current levels of forestation against the encroaching sands, they don't have the ability to harvest enough lumber to create either charcoal or just to burn the wood straight for roasting said peanuts. And so, while they have the ability to and can grow a large amount of nuts, all of those peanuts must be sun-dried and then shelled by hand. When a nut itself isn't roasted, the kernels don't shrink away from the outer shell. So what you have is a dried-out peanut that is now exceedingly hard and very labor-intensive to process. To make it a viable food source, there needed to be a way to mechanically mass-shell these nuts. And so, Brandis took it upon himself to invent one. With the help of some friends who worked movie magic, he ended up building a machine that he perfected by molding concrete into a certain nice shape and then allowing the users to purchase some simple metal materials so they can manufacture their very own hand-cranked peanut husker. For about $10 worth of material, you can produce a machine that can shell about 100 pounds of nuts per hour. Brandis, being the amazing soul that he was, didn't patent his invention and instead shared the designs with a number of members of the Peace Corps so they could spread it to any and all who could use it. Seriously, is that guy a mensch or what? And to think... Doing all that, he was lucky enough to get to work on this picture.
production on this film was interesting, if not inventive. You see, the cast were a bunch of acting students and or locals from the area. So aside from like, well, Jock Brandis being the biggest actual person to come out of this, perhaps the biggest name in the cast, at least then was still an unknown, uh, actor William Russ was involved in this project. Uh, himself a student at the university with director Barry, he would go on to be in such films as Cruising, The Right Stuff, but he would be most remembered for playing the role of Alan Matthews. That's the dad on the sitcom Boy Meets World. Now, this production, while it had actors, still was in dire need of having an actual crew. It was Brandis who was charged with getting some cheap labor fast, and the 26-year-old accomplished this by driving across the border into his homeland of Canada and smuggling in a van full of non-union Canadian youths to work on the picture, sans official work visas, of course. Now, in that process, they also smuggled in, quote, a borrowed human skeleton to use on the set and to amplify some of the horror effects. Now, the production just needed a location, and they found it in a derelict historical mansion outside of the city. The historic Garwood Mansion was initially constructed in the late 1920s by Detroit speedboat racer Gar Wood, who selected the spot on Greyhaven Island just on the river. Wood himself sold the mansion in the late 1940s to Emmanuel Harris, but the mansion itself would sit vacant until it was eventually leased in the late 1960s by a brazen youth named Mark Hoover. The location itself quickly became a haven for touring rock bands, who would be invited by Hoover into its palatial rooms. The mansion was graced with the likes of Van Morrison, Ted Nugent, Sly and the Family Stone, The Allman Brothers, Mountain, Johnny Winter, Leon Russell. If you performed in Detroit proper, you would go and stay over at the mansion instead of going to a hotel. In spite of all these crazed rock and roll shenanigans, there were actually no recorded fights or hard squabbles or even destruction of property. Although Alice Cooper infamously was kicked out for quote, being too drunk and causing problems. Wow, gotta imagine what he could have been doing amongst a bunch of partying rock stars. Still, 1972, the activity at the Garwood Mansion did not go unnoticed by the Detroit police, and they were not thrilled with this rock and roll millionaire riffraff and their fans coming into their quiet neck of the woods. They began to surveil the mansion, and in a raid in January of that same year, uh, it was, quote, discovered that 25 kilos of marijuana were hidden within the mansion, which Hoover and his rock and roll guests objected to and claimed were planted by the police. No matter, this allowed charges to be brought against Harris, from local landowners. You see, they could file a lawsuit against Harris, who in turn would be, you know, forced to kick his tenants out. Before the mansion itself was completely padlocked, however, the Biker Club, um, 
I would call them a gang, but we're going to call them a motorcycle club, who refer to themselves as the Outlaws. I'm sure you've heard of them. They ended up squatting on the land, and they used it to host a national bike run for a solid week. They did horrific damage to the mansion, something that partying rock stars couldn't even do. And it was during this crazy occupation of the mansion by a bunch of bikers that our intrepid film crew decided it would be a great idea to sneak in past those bikers and do their own illegal filming on the mansion's grounds and within its walls, using mansion exteriors and then a single bedroom within for all of the shots and setups of the bed. The empty mansion itself was eventually struck by lightning a few years later, and it completely burned to the ground. But for our purposes, this was a heck of a find, if the casting crew didn't mind risking life and limb to shoot there. Brandis was actually given a $300 budget for the special effects to make the bed of deathbed come to life and, quote, eat. His first order of business was to scour the entire city of Detroit, buying up all of the yellow food coloring he could get his hands on. This would serve to make the acidic foam and the subsequent stomach fluid of the bed itself that we get to see as items and people get dropped inside the bed. To make the bed eat, he then had rigged up three air mattresses, each on top of the other, and through controlled deflation and steady sinking would pull the people, as well as the pillows and the sheets, towards the mattress's center, which gave the appearance of being slowly consumed by the bed as the person or objects would sink down through a series of deflating mattresses. Too broke to afford a camera test of the actual effect, Brandis himself was cast to be a priest who gets eaten by the bed as a proof-of-concept shot, which led to the special effects man scouring seedy hotels on the edge of Detroit in order to find a Gideon Bible for his character to use as a prop. You know, the priest would be reading it when he meets his end being eaten by the bed. Brandis ended up unknowingly procuring a Bible for this picture from a local brothel, uh, who promptly kicked the young man out when he came in explaining he was just there to see if he could get a copy of the good book, even he would borrow it. He was roughly ejected, but hey, at least to their credit, the management of said whorehouse did give him the Bible for free. Shooting on this picture actually only took a few days. It's the post-work of this film, delayed by director Barry's lack of funds, that would stretch the making of from 1972 all the way to 1977. Five years of struggling to scrape together the funds to finish it. When Barry finally came in to have the film's official answer print struck in 1977, that's when you take a film and you get it printed with color correction and you actually sync the sound to the images on the screen. In total, with five years, he had spent over $30,000 on getting this film made. And unfortunately for Barry, in the early 1980s, as he's trying to shop this around to various video distributors, 
the slasher genre is in full bloom and it is taking hold of both cineplex and people's home video watching video distributors were not exactly chomping at the bit to see his killer bed feature During this time, Barry was still looking to get another answer print completed that would be transferred to video. The film didn't still have a proper title or credits. A small video distributor in LA agreed to finish the film master for him for a paltry $1,000, and Barry at the time couldn't swing it. And so his master composite was just returned to him. Dejected, he shelved his own project and apparently thought it just wouldn't be seen. And yet, it was. You see, someone at that distribution company ended up making a copy of that master. And before anything could be done, they took the pirated video in 1983 and sent that bootleg into the UK where it was unscrupulously sold to a rather small Portland video label who distributed across Great Britain, Spain, Australia, and New Zealand. And that's where it became a cult film, passed on by those in the know. Now, smash cut to 2002. We are a full quarter century later, and director George Barry is hanging out, surfing on the web, and looking at film forums as he is apt to do, when he comes across an article that was shared to a Poverty Row Horrors film list. And there, somebody was commenting that they wanted to know if anyone else had saw a film when they were a kid. This great weird film about a killer bed that eats people in this abandoned mansion. Does anyone know what it's called? Barry was floored, and he began to make some inquiries. And that's where he learned that his film had indeed been seen by quite a number of people. A number of them over the last 25 years. And he, as the owner of this new strange but still tangible property, could see there was renewed interest. And thus, in reaching out to the right people, Barry sparked a reprinting of the official release, and that's what we are here to cover today. So, I must say, you folks have been ever so patient, and here's the thing, um, I'm gonna play one of the many small trailers that exist for this film, but the problem is, none of them have any sort of dialogue. You see, this film never had an official theatrical release, so there is no former trailer for you to hear. But I will throw out some cool music that was scraped together for the film just to keep things kosher and to give us a trailer break. Roll it.
we open on a dark screen and crunching noises. And that's actually all that we get to hear and see for quite a bit of time before a title card pops up that tells us breakfast. You see, a young couple, played by Dessa Stone and Ed Oldani, end up driving up to a mansion and bring with them a picnic basket loaded with apples, wine, cold fried chicken. Trespassing, they enter the property and gain access to a basement bedroom where they find a dark, dank room with a massive four-post canopy bed. Wanting to eat, but hey, being so young and so in love, they enthusiastically throw the food to the side and hop onto the bed itself. And as their own passion builds, they fail to notice that their food is comically being consumed, disappearing slowly into the mattress, melting into a yellow foam. Something's wrong. Why, well, I, I must have made a mistake. Don't worry, I wasn't hungry. The concept that the bed drinks the wine and leaves the bottle is initially rather amusing to see. Still, the couple's rather confused as to where their food could have managed to run off to. But they decide, ah, the hell with it, and they don't notice the fact that as they are slowly kissing, the ornate canopy bed curtains are closing in around them, obscuring them from the viewer's sight. And that's exactly when the screams and further munching sounds fill the air. It is now almost ten minutes into the film, and we finally get our title card, Deathbed, The Bed That Eats. We then launch into narration from a man who is observing everything. He witnessed the couple's deaths. Aubrey Beardsley, as played by David Marsh. A man who was not consumed by the bed itself, possibly because of his tuberculosis. But he now finds himself punished, dead, but a ghost, stuck in a painting that hangs on the wall, observing the bed and its horrible machinations throughout the years as it eats people that come into its room. A demon residing in a tree on a whim changed himself into a breeze. While in this state he drifted one morning by a young maiden. He circled around and back surrounding her in his form. Gently he blew through her hair, her mind and her dreams. For her seduction, he decided to create a bed unique for the occasion. He called to her knowing she had to come. He took a human form, except for his eyes, for a demon's eyes are always filled with blood. But something tragic happened. Though he was a man in shape, he was still a demon, unnatural to her, and she died. This was not his plan. He was truly saddened. His eyes turned cold, shattered in their grief. Tears of blood fell onto the bed. He fled, seeking shelter in a barren tree, and has stayed there to this day. The blood left behind took root into the bed, and from this root a life sprang, and with this life, a hunger. Once in every ten years does a demon sleep, and when he sleeps, he finds you in his nightmares. 
Only then do you lose all power save a little to defend yourself. And I can talk beyond my painting. So, this is a little confusing. Let me just try to recap it here for you. Uh, apparently the bed was created when a demon falling in love with a woman, as played by Linda Bond, ended up conjuring a magic bed on which to seduce her. Unfortunately, he ends up killing her in the act of his seduction, and his bloody tears of grief bring the bed to life and give it an evil sentience. Now, every decade, when the demon sleeps, the bed has to itself go dormant. But as long as the demon is awake, the bed goes on and noshes on whoever comes within range. Beardsley ends up insulting the bed, and the malevolent spirit uses its powers to destroy most of the mansion, but it still leaves its own room perfectly intact. So, really harming no one? We are then treated to a new title card that explains lunch, and we get to see three women, Sharon, as played by Rosa Luxemburg, Susan, as played by Julie Ritter, and Diane, as played by Demean Hall, all stumble their way into now the ruins of this mansion, and of course, discover the still pristine bedroom, along with the killer bed in the lower basement area. Of course, the way no one does, they decide, well, we may as well stay here for the night. For reasons that we cannot quite understand, two of the women end up leaving Susan, and she ends up falling asleep on the bed, where she is killed and eventually consumed as the bed strangles her by eating her necklace first and then dragging her into its folds. The suitcase isn't in the car or the room. What should we do? There's a town about ten miles back. You better take the car and go get some help. Well, what do you do? I'll stay here in case she comes back. Diane and Sharon return and begin to look for Susan. Of course, that necessitates them splitting up. Sharon will take the car and drive up the road, trying to make it to the gas station to look for her in town, and Diane will stay and hang out in the room to wait. She's going to have a drink and smoke on the bed. We, of course, get to see some then-vignettes of past eats the bed has enjoyed, including watching him consume a priest, a frumpy old lesbian, two goofball mobsters who shoot at the bed and yet are still consumed, and, of course, the bed takes on a large party of swingers. We then get a title card that simply states, Dinner, and Diane wakes to the sound of the bed eating and begins to scream as she throws herself off the side of it, her legs bloody and half-consumed. Just when it appears that she has made the long crawl across the floor to the doorway, a sheet flies across the room and, like a tentacle, wraps itself around her and begins to pull her back into the bed's embrace. Sharon, of course, has driven now down the road and back again, and returns to the room to find her friend being pulled into the bed, and try as she might, she can't hold on and watches in horror as Diane disappears into the bed's folds. Sharon's brother is played by William Russ, who, by the way, doesn't get a name. He is simply called Sharon's brother. He's been looking for the three the entire time, and he finally comes across the mansion himself. He enters the room, and Sharon tells him all about the bed and how it ate Diane, and then he pulls out a knife and proceeds to attempt to cut into the mattress. But the bed grabs onto him, 
and begins to consume his hands. If not for the fact that his sister was holding him around the waist and pulls him away, he himself would have been completely eaten. Instead, the bed only consumes his hands, leaving him with nothing more than some polished skeletal fingers. There's no flesh left. There's hardly any blood. It's almost like a surgical operation. Great. Cartilages decay. They'll fall off one by one. I don't think I can stand it. A title card flashes. Just desserts. And we get to hear Beardsley again narrating to us that now the demon has finally fallen asleep and the bed is rendered powerless. Now, able to communicate with the outside world, Beardsley tells Sharon what to do to destroy the evil piece of furniture. Sharon first drags her brother outside, and she is then instructed out there to create two rings of wood. She then is told to go back into the room, and taking the knife, cuts a circle into the floor, which causes the bed to scream in anguish, and makes the floor itself bleed. She then places the hair of her consumed friends and the bone fragments of her brother's hands into the circle, which, for some reason, causes the bed to transport outside. And she then lights a fire in the room, which goes first through the circle, and then engulfs Sharon. Beardsley sort of apologizes for that one. Well, sort of, as much as he's willing to. I'm afraid I've lied to you. And that I knew you wouldn't be able to survive the ceremony. Another will be needed to destroy it, the one who unwillingly gave it life. Your death will be her life. Sharon's death in the fire resurrects the lost love of the demon. She wakes up and ends up joining the brother in the outside wooden circle, where she inexplicably comes on to the now handless man, and they start to make love, which wakes the demon and causes the bed to spontaneously combust in a fiery rage. The tree demon also is screaming and catches fire, and the circle with the two lovers indeed catches flame as well. Screams are heard from all parties, and then the bed disappears into flame and smoke. With all of that, Beardsley is now free, and he exits the painting, happily getting to pass on now to the other side, self-satisfied in having manipulated the others into gaining his own freedom credits roll. Alright, where do we even begin? First and foremost, I will freely admit to you all, this movie is 
bonkers. And when you get right down to it, the story of how they made it was actually more interesting than what we got to see here on the screen. But that is not to say this endeavor is a waste of time. I actually do think there's an honest-to-goodness germ of a good idea here. It's just with the way it was shot, the limited focus, and the way the film was edited really kind of wastes anything that could be good. Let's take the usage of Aubrey Beardsley as a narrator. That's a great choice. Who wouldn't like to have a story featuring a ghostly narrator who sets things up for you, the viewer, to explain to you what's going on? The problem is you have a narrator that doesn't really get into the hows or whys of things that are taking place until the middle of the story. Now, if a story has good writing, you can have events happen in a non-linear fashion, and it's not a problem because you can have the audience follow through because you have good writing and a solid sense of what your story is going to be. And when you have non-linear stories, it can be a great method for storytelling. But when you have a half-thought-out concept and then you tell your story in a non-linear fashion, when it comes time to try to put the plot together, what little there is leaves the viewer confused at best and bored at worst. Because we don't get more out of Aubrey Beardsley, the other than his assumption that he himself is a ghost because the bed somehow rejected him, possibly due to his illness, it still, for some reason, has killed him and trapped him into one of his own paintings. All of that as a character, that's great. It's wasted here. You know he's unhappy, you know he hates the bed, but by the time he starts interacting with other characters on screen, we're talking about the last, like, six minutes of the film. We don't know enough about him to care. Is he good? Is he bad? Is he getting revenge? Is he trying to stop this evil for good? He's obviously lying a bit at the end, and it seems to be for his own gain, but since we don't even know enough about him, we don't even know if we should care. So many things could have been different here. Beardsley could have been helping the bed. He could have been controlling it in a fashion. He could have been openly in revolt against it, trying perhaps to further manipulate the men and women who come across the ages to help free him of this curse. All of those could have been great ideas to try, but again, that's not what was chosen, so you have a wasted opportunity here. Because without some motivation or pathos behind any of this, yeah, what you're left with is just a really bad story about a bed that eats people. Now, on to a little bit of logic. So clearly, Barry himself is trying to be artsy when he can horrific when he's able, but the real head-scratcher about this film is the odd and random comedy that is just peppered in. Now, I would in no way say you can't joke around a little with the horror genre and still deliver a serious product. There are a lot of great movies that are very scary that have moments of levity, which help them. But seriously, you have a film called Deathbed the Bed That Eats, and it's not a comedy. Man, you need to wake up and take a deep, long look in the mirror and ask yourself what went wrong for you that you couldn't pick out the fact that you had a gold mine here. When did you stop caring about things? Are you so uncomfortable with the concept of comedy that you couldn't commit yourself fully to that notion? And yet, 
you were so strapped for coherent scenes that you didn't edit out those comedic bits that don't fit at all with the tone of the rest of your film. I would argue with the right tweaks and with a certain level of winking at the camera, this film could have been ramped up into being a spectacular comedy. And then it could have enjoyed some of the same level of those marvelous Corman and Crown International B films that knew exactly what they were doing, where they were giving a little bit of horror with a knowing tongue-in-cheek campy wink to the camera. Take for example, the absurdity that is the loss of the brother's hands. A moment that should be horrific and frightening is rendered weird and silly, as you see William Russ not really reacting, almost as if he's bored and just wants to get out of there. Look man, you just lost your hands. You know, even if it's not bleeding or if the pain has subsided, perhaps, you know, emotions could be conveyed. A little bit of shock, panic, horror, it could wash over your character. Nope. Instead, Russ, who's not a bad actor, decides to play it off as if he has consumed a dose of clonopin about the size of a Twinkie. I can't help but notice my fingers seem to be missing. Will fiddle-dee-dee. Without the characters either playing the material straight or without them ramping it up so that we don't take it seriously and they overact, we are left with a scene that is neither horrible enough to get fear from it, nor is the acting over the top enough to make us laugh at the humor and absurdity of the situation. It's neither fish nor fowl, so it doesn't work. Or, here, one more part that could actually lead this into being proper comedy. Take the example, you have the titular bed. Here, the bed laughs, it belches, it drinks wine, it has indigestion, and there's even a scene where the bed takes Pepto-Bismol. And yet, the gags are so poorly executed and are still kind of done in a somber way, so it doesn't really work as a joke. It's like if you had just put a little more energy into it, leaned into the joke and played that off of a very serious cast, this could have been a really good cult film, and considered to have intentional horror comedy, and it could have found a niche audience. Again, I will say this, what should I expect from a film that has this title and this subject matter? You paid to watch a bed that eats, this film features just that, sit down and shut up. I hear you, I get it. There is truth in advertising here in this film. But, you know, it seems to me to be a wasted opportunity. And I hate wasted opportunities. You know what though? Not everyone thinks about this film the way that I do. And that's okay. People don't have to always agree with me. That's exactly what we have sidecars for.
And joining us here this week, after a bit of an extended hiatus, we once again welcome the great Velocipeter Peter himself, Peter Martin, of the Velosa Podcast and of Ninja News Podcast, joining us here again to share some of his feelings about Deathbed. And so, I ask very simply, what do you have for us, Peter? You probably don't realize this, but... Chris pays me millions of dollars to nitpick these movies. And sometimes even I feel like my criticisms may be sort of unfair. Then he gave me the assignment of watching Deathbed. Now, I can forgive a lot of stuff. I can forgive that it clearly had no budget, that it had one prop, that it had one soundstage and tried to film it all outside. I could forgive that... It just wasn't very well scripted, that there wasn't much story to it, that the premise doesn't really make a lot of sense, that they don't explain the supernatural nature of what's going on very well, in that how people end up keep coming to the deathbed. Honestly, all of that I didn't have much of a problem with, because, you know, maybe you don't have a lot of money and you want to make a movie. I don't think that should be held against you. What I usually am most critical of are clearly logical problems that I, as the viewer, cannot get past, and it inhibits my ability to forgive everything else. So here we are at the opening scene of Deathbed. And let me play that for you right now. Now, I don't need to actually set up anything, like a visual, because there isn't one. It is a completely black screen, and you are hearing this sound. Okay, now let's be very clear. I cut that off. It actually continues for a lot longer than what you just heard. And what did we just hear? Well, it was a biting sound. And then a biting sound. And then a biting sound. And a biting sound. They never stop to chew. If you are biting, that means a big chunk of whatever you're biting is going into your mouth. If it's going into your mouth... Then you have to chew it before you can swallow it. Now, this is the opening scene. We have no context, so I was willing to wait and see what happened. But we weren't given anything until later. And later, it actually makes less sense. So my image right now was something biting, probably an apple, over and over and over again, and just those big chunks of apple falling out of its mouth. When we get into the movie itself, the movie proper, the deathbed, when you sit on it, sucks you into it. When it sucks you into it, there are these extended scenes uh, simulating something being dissolved in acid. And now we come to the actual problem. At no point do they show teeth. So the thing I had a problem with at the beginning was that it was biting and biting and biting and not chewing. But the bed itself doesn't chew because it dissolves things in acid. But the bed itself is never demonstrated to have any teeth, so there would never be any biting. There would be sort of a sucking sound, maybe, as you get sucked into the bed, 
and then dissolved in the acid that we get to watch, quite frankly, at length. If you are going to make a movie, because I assume the people who listen to this podcast are the kind of people who are into movies, maybe you're young and you're aspiring to make movies yourself. This is the kind of thing that is unforgivable. If you're biting, you got to chew. If you don't have teeth, you're not biting. You have to make a decision. You have to commit to that decision. And more than anything else, it has to make sense. Or I, as a critical viewer, I'm going to spend the whole movie sitting there going, why isn't it chewing? And then, why is it biting in the first place? First and foremost, it's going to be hard to defend this one, although not anyone has really asked me to. But I have to say, Peter is completely on the money with this. Except that part about me paying him millions, although, I mean, I really wish that were true, but hey, no matter. Director Barry was either showing how ballsy he could be by daring to start a movie with a black screen and those crunching apple biting noises, sans any chewing and swallowing that Peter was so apt to point out, for a period of almost two minutes. That's a really long time to listen to that noise without having any action going on the screen. Now, the only thing I can offer up that would make sense is I'm guessing, understanding the budgetary concerns and what he was working with, Barry himself didn't have the resources to have good foley work and sound design done on this film. So my guess is he got single access to the single sound of crunching. And that effect was going to be used over and over and over again to have anything to do with eating. Still, that lack of chewing and swallowing on anything other than that one singular noise is beyond annoying, and it can be off-putting. So, to that I say, thank you, as always, Peter. That was some really great insight. Look, I guess the best way to describe this film is for me to put it like this. I can't tell you in good conscience this is a good movie. Hell, you just listen to a description of it. You are probably equally as confused as to why I would even have chosen it for this week. And my answer to that question you didn't ask is twofold. When you have a month-long theme entitled, wait, what? You're statistically not going to be observing films that are designed to be broad crowd-pleasers. My answer for B is very simple. It's a cult film, and this is a show that covers weird cult films, particularly ones that I own. So, enough said. So I hear you out there. How was this film actually received when it finally made its debut a quarter century after it was created? Well... This film, again, had no official theatrical release nor a full video market release back in the day. 
it only had those bootlegs floating in certain areas. So there's no actual return data to speak in like you'd get from a box office or from having, you know, butts in seats. Instead, we have to try to put it in context through other metrics. So going back to our old friend at Rotten Tomatoes, if you go on the website, at least as of the date of this recording, uh, there's a single fresh rating to be seen from a critic. Not enough, though, to even average it properly to have a critical consensus. The more telling number is the 30% rating the film holds with audience voters. The best thing at the moment this film has going for it, although, hey, now that we've covered it on this show, I'm sure it's going to see a huge boost in viewership. Alright, maybe not. But, if people like bad movies, a la the way it's done on MST3K, or Svenguli, Elvira, or Joe Bob Briggs and The Last Drive-In, that style of horror, comedy, and hosting, this film could really develop an even more distinct cult following if the right people started to view it. And I think, again, while it is not good inherently, this film could be elevated up the horror cinema chain, perhaps being a lesser film more in the vein of something like Manos, The Hands of Fate, where it develops an audience who love it for its comedy and absurdity. And yet, this film still is having a bit of an effect on popular culture, even to this day. Back in 2002, the film was remade, with director George Barry writing and adapting a new version of his script to be used by director Danny Draven. And the film itself was produced by Stuart Gordon and released through Full Moon Pictures. It's a completely different movie. Don't get me wrong, but you're still at your core dealing with a haunted bed that has an evil presence who menaces a young couple who have just moved into a home and they discovered the abandoned piece of furniture locked away in their attic. It's still cheesy, it's still bad, but at least this version has, oh, a plot and character development, which really sees it through. I'm not at all telling you to go out and see it. You truly don't have to. but. No, it exists. It's out there. More interestingly, in 2013, author Gwenifer Roller, yeah, it took me a little bit to say myself, ended up teaming up with Jock Brandis. Oh, by the way, they're also a couple now. And basically, Gwenifer wanted to make Jock the subject of a play she wrote. It's called Deathbed, The Play That Bites, and the story itself is a spoof, kind of in the vein of Little Shop of Horrors, which is told in mockumentary style through a young, acting, Brandis's point of view on just how crazy it was to work on the movie Deathbed, The Bed That Eats itself. It was fully endorsed by director Barry, he gave his full support for it, and when the play made its debut on Halloween back in 2014, he was in the front row to see it. The play itself has gotten good reviews, Brandis himself has finally retired from doing some sort of frivolous work. You know, something crazy. Oh wait, he was the director of research and development for the Full Belly Project up until 2019. He is now focusing his retirement energy on a bunch of new projects to help try to get farmers in North Carolina to successfully grow 
hemp to use in hemp cotton blends to try to make things easier for long-term environmental sustainability. That's pretty busy for a gentleman who's 73 years old. The version of Deathbed screened here at the LSCE is the original 2003 Cult Epics DVD release that came with some pretty bare bones features. There were some liner notes, a short video introduction from director Barry himself, and the full unrated cut of the film. Copies of this version are still available online, although it's at a rather higher rate for new discs. They're averaging right now at being about $29.99 on Amazon.com. A multi-format DVD Blu-ray combo, however, was released in 2014, and that sells brand spanking new for the much less painful $23.92. Hey, maybe you want to keep the memory of the film preserved, and you'd rather go ahead and purchase Patton Oswalt's album, Werewolves and Lollipops, instead. Go ahead, you should totally do that. It's great, and it could be yours for the low price of $16.98 for an actual disc. Or, if you prefer a digital download, you can get the entire album for $9.49, again, through Amazon. It's a great comedic investment. Remember, folks, I want to point out here, we don't get anything at the LSCE for telling you where or who to buy your content from. We just think it's important, especially these days, to continue to support physical media so that these artists and right holders get paid and they'll continue to keep releasing the great content that we know and love. And at the end of the day, isn't that what this is all about? Getting more of what you love? Besides, if nothing else, Deathbed, The Bed That Eats, is one of those things, for good or ill, that needs to be seen to be believed. And if you're listening to this and you're interested in the weird, what are you waiting for? Get out there and see it today. So that's going to wrap things up here for this episode of I Saw It on Linden Street. Thank you so much for joining us. I'd like to again extend a special thank you to our sidecar guest, the Velocipeter himself, Peter Martin, for joining us here today. If you've enjoyed his breakdown, and why wouldn't you? You can find him speaking on a host of other topics, both on Ninja News Japan and on the Veloci podcast. So please, go out there, support our friends, give him a listen and a like and review if you could, please. We do hope you will tune in again to our show, and if you'd like us, please give us a favorable review on Apple Podcasts and subscribe. Swing by, check out our website, that's lscep.com. We have articles there, episode links, and comics for you to peruse. We're also featured on Podchaser, that's a podcast database for listeners and creators of podcasts alike. I'm very happy to report that I Saw It on Linden Street has now been included in the Apodalypse list. That is a curated list created by Brian Wayne, and we are currently now ranked in the third most liked list on Podchaser proper. That's awesome. Please, find us there. Give us a follow and review if you could please. And hey, feel free to like that list to help boost our collective stock. 
There are some marvelous podcasts on that list. Please check them out. More reviews and increased likes make us all more searchable, and then we can share our message with more people. As always, if you'd like to get in touch with us, make a comment, ask a question, send us wonderful things, please feel free to email us at lindenstreetcinemaexperience at gmail.com. If you'd like to have an even more personal interaction, you wish to contribute something to the sidecar, send us an audio message by way of Anchor. That's a free and easy app to use. So, until next time, everybody, please take care out there, wash your hands, wear a mask, please stay healthy and safe, and remember, life's too short not to live in the past. Take it easy out there, everybody. Thank you.